Welcome to Two Countries, One Crime, with your hosts, Caitlin and BB. Oh my god. Zoom's I... never done that before. Wow. Weird. Recording in progress. <laughs> um, but as I was about to say before that woman interrupted me was, <laughs> <laughs> my case will make you say, what the literal fuck? And I feel like that's the point of our podcast. Yeah, that's why we're doing this. Um, yeah. Just to shock our listeners. Um, that's right. Actually, do you know, um, like, I think like five different people that I know who listen to our podcast reached mm-hmm. out to me after mm-hmm. our cults episode uh-huh. to tell me like how messed up. Dude, people were freaked <laughs> out by that episode, which it makes sense. Um, but one of my friends actually texted me and said, uh, they listened to the episode and then he started watching The Vow, which is one of the docuseries I mentioned on it. And he was like, these people are so stupid. The one guy believes that Keith Raniere invented a new type of math, but is surprised by how short he is. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> it, it just, it makes no sense on so many levels that it boggles the mind, but. But hey, we're not here to judge. Well, that's not true. Yeah, I, I guess we judge a little bit. I, I I like to think that we strike though a good balance between judging but also being empathetic when the time calls for it. I agree. I think we're perfect and flawless. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are Beyonce. <laughs> um, yeah. So we don't have um, like you and I usually come up with like names mm-hmm. in advance for our episodes. Mm-hmm. And we actually don't have one for today. I saw your suggestion of Young Guns, which yeah. I really love. Because really? Okay. I just threw yeah. that out there. I wasn't even, like, sure about it. I mean, well, it's part of our shtick, you know, our, like, movie title thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, you know, Young Guns is, like, one of those late 80s rat pack not Rat Pack, Brat Pack. Rat Pack. <laughs> Excuse me. It doesn't star Frank Sinatra. It stars Kiefer Sutherland. And it's so good. I love that movie. Is so. it Matt Dillon too? Or am I confusing it with another movie? Oh God, is Matt Dillon in that? It's Kiefer, Christians, is Christian Slater? In oh, Christian. actually, no, oh, yeah, actually remember. that would make sense if it was Christian Slater. Oh, 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 Charlie Sheen. Oh. <laughs> Wait, and Emilio Estevez? Are they in it together? They might be. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I'm down with Young Guns. If you have other suggestions, I'll hear them, but I have I mean, nothing. Not really. I mean, like, I was trying to think about, you know, like, titles of movies or songs with, like, like, I actually thought, like, Baby Hit Me One More Time might have been, like, a good one. <laughs> Except, like, My Killer's not, I mean, he's young, but he's not an actual baby. Oh, um, really? Mine's, a, mine's an infant. Oh. Yeah. Pretty impressive. Holy shit. <laughs> Ooh, speaking of which, we could call it baby geniuses. Baby geniuses. I'm just mm. kidding. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'd rather call it young guns than baby geniuses. No offense, baby less geniuses. Less controversial. Less baby geniuses had its moment in film history, and um, I think we're all past it and don't wish to revisit it. I but. actually never saw it. Wow, it was my youngest sister's favorite movie when she was a child. It's so dumb. You actually, I kind of want you to watch it because it's so fucking hilarious. But the premise is that babies have all the knowledge of the universe until they turn two. But since they're babies, they can't do anything with it. (laughs) I kind of like that. It's really funny. And it's like one of those movies where the babies are voiced by adults. 
and it's just really funny. It's so <laughs> stupid. It's so nice. It's such one of those early, early 2000s, late 90s, whenever it was movies, um, where you're just like, how high were these people? <laughs> And they like take down an evil person. I forget, but it's it's amazing. What was your favorite movie when you were a kid? What was my favorite movie as a child? Oh my god. I'm trying to think like what movie did we watch all of the time? Like a Disney movie or something like that? My favorite Disney movie was The Aristocats. Oh. Uh, and you know what your mom reminds me of um the the lady who owns the cats. What's her name? Oh my God, Madam, um, I forget, but I think they just call her Madam for the whole movie. Yeah. But yes, she's like, yeah, that's When hilarious. I met your mom, like she gave me those vibes. Like she's just like <gasps> oh tall and slim and elegant and like very intimidating. And I was like, whoa. <gasps> oh my God, that's so sweet. I'll tell her you said that. Um, she'll be so, so excited. Yes, I, I loved the Aristocats. Um, I don't know, maybe... I can't remember if these were my favorite movies when I was a kid or if they're my favorite movies now. I have to ask my parents what like weird movie I watched obsessively, but Dumb and Dumber probably and like Uncle Buck. <laughs> uh, my so. sister watched Mulan like every day, mm-hmm. like a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but Hunchback of Notre Dame was like my favorite Disney movie. Oh my God, Bibi, that movie made me so fucking sad that movie oh it's a so very depressing. sad movie. well it's based on like oh. a really famous like book right and like of course, well, of course well i remember when i was like six or seven like i asked because my, my mom told me she's like you know it's based on like uh like a really famous book and stuff mm-hmm. and i was like oh like you know what's so what's like the real story from the book and the story from the book is actually like really fucking scary like yeah like um esmeralda actually gets like kidnapped mm-hmm. as a baby um <gasps> Uh, so she's born actually into a wealthy family and she gets kidnapped by, uh, you know, what they refer to as the gypsies, which is like not an okay term, but that's like what they refer uh, Mm -hmm. to them as. And then when her like birth mother finds the encampment, she sees that they're like roasting something on the fire. And because of her prejudice, she assumes that they're eating her baby, but really no, they were roasting a lamb and the baby was alive and was raised just fine. Um, and I think Quasimodo was actually born as in, in, you know, as a quote unquote, like gypsy or whatever, and was mm-hmm. abandoned because he was deformed yeah. as a baby and nobody would take him. Um, and he, and like, and in the, in the book, like, I think he's like blind and deaf. Um, or, well, he's definitely deaf from the yeah. um, the bells ringing. Oh he's around it from like the time that he's a, a baby. And so he actually grows up to be deaf. Um, anyway, it's it's a much scarier story. Like the real thing is actually a lot, a lot sadder and a lot spookier. When did you read this? How old were you? Um, I never read the book. Like, oh, but my okay. mom, my oh, mom oh. gave me the plot oh. of it when I was six. Oh. And oh. um and like uh, the French, the French version of Broadway basically did mm-hmm. a a, mus- a, um, a musical, yeah, like a like a musical based on that book. Like you know how there's Les Mis, mm-hmm. so it's actually from the same author of Les mm-hmm. Mis, Notre Dame de Paris. Mm-hmm. And so they, they, yeah, so they did a musical, and I went to see it when I was six, and it was like really good. It blew my mind. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's so like I've known like the real story for a long time, but the yeah. the Disney version is fine as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> The Disney version was disturbing enough for me. That's so, so scary. I mean, Wait, they what's... like try to burn Esmeralda, which I think, yeah, out of all the Disney movies is maybe one of the more violent things that we see. Oh, I don't know. The Lion King's pretty violent. Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, ooh, what's Cana- French Canadian Broadway called? Um, well, there's no like name for it. Like I just like, 
it's like théâtre, which is like mm -hmm. the French word for theater. And but okay. like, but you know what's really weird is that our the French word for musical is comédie musicale, mm -hmm. which literally translates to musical comedy, even mm -hmm. if it's not a comedy. Even if it's not a comedy, you would still call it a comédie musicale. I think that's interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I feel more cultured. <laughs> Good. Now on to murder. Um, so yeah. So okay. So we've decided on young guns over baby geniuses. We're feeling good. Okay. Cool. It was a close call, though. <laughs> Do you want to? I can't wait for you to watch Baby Geniuses. I'm gonna find it on Amazon Prime Video or whatever and like gift it to you somehow. Um, <laughs> Do you want to go first this week? You do, because um, you're standing, you're ready. Yes, I'm ready. Okay. So, Young Guns, although my story does not involve guns of any kind, hmm. um, which is, is it just me or like guns committed with knives so much worse? Yes, they are. Yeah. Because you have to fucking stab someone. Yeah. Yes. I but at the same time, crimes committed with guns make me so much more angry, especially when they're in the States, because you guys don't have any way to control guns. Agree. And ha everybody has them, so agree it's worse to stab someone because it obviously means that you're more mad at them and you're more violent but it's way easier to kill people with guns which is why i hate them more than knives yeah I would, i'm like you know what if you have a knife and you want to try murder me there's at least a chance that i'll survive that but like if you come at me with a gun like yeah you're probably gonna kill me yeah Ooh, i don't like to think about that you're welcome I <laughs> Um, okay, and actually, <clears throat> I, I do want to say, trigger warning, this story involves, yes, like, obviously violence committed by a child, but mm -hmm. he also commits it on other children. So I just wanted to, okay, like, got you. you know, put a trigger warning out there. Mm -hmm. This story contains uh, violence against children. Mm -hmm. Okay, so my sources were Wikipedia, Murderpedia, the Toronto Star, and a Medium article by somebody named L. Hall. Um, although I have to say, like, all of my sources repeated the same information. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there is not a lot on this guy, uh, but there's enough that we know what happened, and I think there's enough to, like, really think about why it, it happened. Okay. Um, so in, like, in like preparing for this episode like i also started thinking about like why is it that like children commit violence or whatever and like you and i have talked about things like mental illness we've talked about like environments and we've talked about like a lot of things um so i just wanted to say right off the bat that like i don't believe in evil um like i don't believe in the concept of evil uh, i don't believe that people are either born good or evil like i don't think you're born and like you're you're just like one or the other mm -hmm. um I do think that environmental factors and mental illness probably accounts for like 99% of the terrible things that we read about. Mm -hmm. um, don't come at me for that statistic. I'm just, you know, this is just my my personal opinion. Um, and like in the rare instances where we read about a killer who grew up in a perfectly normal environment and wasn't found to be a psychopath, I usually think that there's another explanation, but I don't think that people are evil, even in that case, you know? And mm -hmm. that being said though, like how many stories have you heard of where the killer didn't have mental illness, didn't come from a bad environment or wasn't in a situation where they felt like they had no other way out? Mm -hmm. Like, I just feel like those stories are so rare where it's just like a perfectly normal person who grew up in a perfectly normal environment, everything was going great for them. And then they went and they killed someone. That's true. And whenever I hear that, I always, I don't know. I think there's so, I think there's so much more to mental, quote unquote, mental illness than we have even scratched the surface of. So even if it's yeah. not something that's like 
diagnosable or known to us or whatever, like it there. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually a a really good point too. It's like, yeah, we have all of these, we have all of these terms. We have all these mental illnesses. Like Mm -hmm. what are we at now? Like the DSM five is like full of them. Mm -hmm. Are we? No. Yeah. DSM five, I think we're at, Mm -hmm. but um, yeah, it's like there, there might, there might be something that, that we don't know that we haven't identified. Mm -hmm. And I do think actually that in a lot of cases, I think people abandon their morals in small actions and then it snowballs into larger ones. You know, like maybe somebody yeah. starts by like lying and then stealing and then cheating and then doing other things. Like I've, I've listened to a lot of Dateline lately mm-hmm. and I feel like I'm hearing about a lot of stories where, again, it's not like the, the people come from like crazy environments or anything like that. They might be like sociopathic, like they might have sociopathic tendencies. Yeah. But in a lot of the stories, it's literally like, oh, well, this woman like liked to exaggerate. And then, oh, and then she was like a kleptomaniac. And then she felt like she had to lie to hide the Mm -hmm. fact that she was a kleptomaniac. And then she got married and things were going better, but then she self-sabotaged and then she Mm -hmm. had an affair and then she had to lie about the affair. And then there was an insurance policy and then she murdered her husband. Like, I feel like there's like always a Mm -hmm. snowball effect. It's not just like, yeah. Um, So yeah, so so I don't think that that makes people evil though. I just think that makes them flawed. Um, so it actually like really pisses me off. Like anytime I listen to a podcast or watch a documentary or read something and mm-hmm. somebody says like, oh, this person was like pure evil. I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I just, I just don't buy that. Like, I usually think that there's an explanation. And even if you can't find one, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I just thought that was important to mention. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. Cause we're going to talk about very young serial killers because our gut reaction might be to say, oh, well, if they murdered so young, it must be because they were born that way. But even young perpetrators tend to have something in their past that shows trauma, neglect, violence, like, et cetera. True, um, true, true. Do you know about Mary Bell? Yes. Yeah. Like Mary Bell was like crazy young when she murdered other children mm-hmm. and she, she was sex trafficked as mm-hmm. a, as a toddler, right, right. you know? So yep. again, another example of like, people are like, Ooh, Mary Bell's so creepy. Like she was so like violent or whatever. It's like, yeah, well there was unspeakable violence done to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that's all you've known. Right. If that's like your development from like a baby to a, whatever age you are is just yeah. that. Yeah. Like how else amazing. are you going to turn out? Yeah. There's no other way for you to turn yeah. out, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found an article from the National Center of Biotechnology Information, and it was titled Children Who Kill. But the subtitle is They Can and Should Be Reclaimed. So okay. I'm just going to read you this paragraph. Juvenile delinquency, including violence, is increasing, but homicide committed by children remains rare. While the acts and features of children who kill are heterogeneous, mm-hmm. yeah, I said that right, heterogeneous, um, all these children are seriously disturbed with high rates of neuropsychological abnormalities, poor impulse control, school failure, and truancy. All have experienced severe family adversities, domestic violence, neglect, child abuse, substance misuse, maternal depression, and absence of fathers. Because homicide by children is so rare, population approaches to prevention are not realistic. But the evidence, though limited, is that with good care and psychiatric treatment, the children do well and do not reoffend in later life. This fact should govern the way that they are treated by the criminal justice system. So I do agree with, mm-hmm. with this article. Like, I do agree that if a child commits a crime, they should be rehabilitated and put back into a society. Unfortunately, though, my story today <laughs> involves a young man who could not be cured of his homicidal tendencies. Okay. So I'm talking about Canada's youngest serial killer, Peter Woodcock. Oh, Peter. 
Peter. The last lame like that, what were you ever going to do? That's true. Oh, God, what was it? Like, oh, yeah, yeah. You know that, like, oh, I don't want to go into it. I'll go into it a little bit. But, like, I was reading up again on, like, that Slender Man case where, like, yeah. the two girls, like, stabbed that other girl. Yep. And how, like, they were sentenced as adults. And the judge was basically like, yeah, but you guys, like, premeditated it and stuff. And I was like, yes, they did. But they're also 12 years old. And, again, mm-hmm. like, the ch- a child's brain. I don't mm-hmm. care if they do something really, really bad. It's still not the same thing as an adult doing something really, really bad. Like it's not. A, a child committing premeditated murder is not the same as an adult committing premeditated murder. Mm-hmm. Yep. Plus, at that age, can you even grasp t- like taking a, that the permanence of taking someone's life? Exactly. Can you? I don't know. Yeah. Actually, I actually think a lot of adults don't either. Like, I actually mm-hmm. think that that's why a lot of adults kill is because mm-hmm. they really lack the empathy to to truly understand the impact of their actions on others. Yeah. Anyway, okay. so. That being said, though, again, I'm going to be a hypocrite and say, don't rehabilitate this guy. Although, anyway, I'm I'm not going to ruin the story for you. I'll just tell you what happened. So Peter Woodcock, he was born March 5th, 1939 in Peterborough, Ontario, Mm -hmm. uh, which is 139 kilometers, also known as 86 stupid miles east of Toronto. So that's about an hour and a half drive from the city, just to give you context. Um, his mother was a 17-year-old factory worker named Wada Woodcock. I think it's pronounced Wada. I've actually never seen this name before. W-A-I-T-A. Never heard of it. Never heard of it. Anyway, hmm. Wada Woodcock, who gave him up for adoption, but not before breastfeeding him for a month. And apparently this would cause some pretty some pretty serious uh, de- developmental issues <gasps> later on. Oh no, was her breast milk just straight booze? I... <laughs> Maybe, like, but also I think he got attached to the mother and then to be torn away from the mother oh. must be pretty traumatic for a baby. Um, but I didn't think of the alcohol thing, and that's actually a pretty good point. Um, so Peter would not stop crying as a baby and feeding him proved to be difficult. He bounced around from foster home to foster home where he would scream if anyone tried to approach him. He didn't develop his speech properly and instead of words just made animal noises. Oh, God. Yeah. He was abused by one of his foster parents. And on one occasion, he was brought to the hospital um, having suffered a twisted neck. Oh, my God. What? Yeah. He was beaten by, um, in one of the foster homes where he stayed, he was was beaten by one of the parents there. And yeah, it's just terrible. Um, So he was finally adopted at the age of three by an upper middle class couple, Frank and Susan Maynard. Uh, And apparently they had another son. But I haven't heard anything about him, about the other okay. son. So okay. hope he's okay. As Woodcock grew older, he was still socially maladjusted. So his adoptive parents took special precautions by bringing him to a therapist, enrolling him in private school, giving him expensive gifts. Like they really showered him with love, affection, mm-hmm. attention, mm-hmm. whatever he needed. Um, doctors detected schizophrenic tendencies. And by the time he was 10, his foster parents feared leaving him alone in case he burned the house down. Oh, shit. Yeah. Um, None of the help or affection or love worked. By age 11, he was described by the Children's Aid Society as an angry little boy. Uh, And they wrote a report, and in the report it said, slight in build, neat in appearance, eyes bright and wide open, worried facial expression, sometimes screwing up of eyes, walks briskly and erect, moves rapidly, darts ahead, interested and questioning constantly in conversation. In some ways, Peter has little capacity for self-control. Peter apparently has no friends. He plays occasionally with younger children, managing the play. 
When with children his own age, he is boastful and expresses determined ideas which are unacceptable and misunderstood. So although therapists would note that he was strongly attached to his foster mom, Peter would later say that he was terrified of her and what she thought of him. Hmm. I thought that was interesting. Huh. Yeah, that's really weird. Like this is like the one woman apparently who's giving him positive attention but but apparently she she was also very um uh stuck up i forget like the proper term for that but apparently she was very like mm-hmm. hoity-toity mm-hmm. i mean i'm ex- i'm like i'm gonna make it an assumption here and say you know maybe the therapist and stuff wasn't so much for his benefit but also because they were embarrassed of him maybe in his behavior and they just wanted to fix it plus if you count all the times that he was rejected by a parent in his life he's probably as just shit terrified that his this woman that he's finally bonded with is gonna let him go yeah that's a good point so around this time when he's 11 one of the youth workers took him to the canadian national exhibition so this is an annual event in toronto it lasts for 18 days and it's basically a chance for different industries to showcase their discoveries and inventions um lots of families go there every year um it's like super a super popular thing in in toronto like um one of the train stations that goes there is called like exhibition station like that's where it's like there's like a big uh section of the city where that's hosted um so during a visit there in 1950 peter reportedly said i wish a bomb would fall on the exhibition and kill all the children so he's yeah he's like saying he's already saying a lot of disturbing shit by the time he's 11. But his hatred of children may not be very surprising. He was bullied throughout his childhood and teenage years, changing schools multiple times. He attended private and public schools. Apparently the bullying was worse in public schools, but even in private schools, he was unable to connect with his peers. So yeah, at the age of 12, he was sent to a school for emotionally disturbed children in Kingston, Ontario. It's a two and a half hour drive from Toronto. So quite quite far. So I'm assuming it was a boarding school. Like, I'm assuming the parents were kind of like, he's disturbed, we're shipping him off. Because I'm also, I mean, I could be wrong, but I feel like there would be a school like that in Toronto. Like, Toronto was the biggest city at that time, still is. Right, that would make sense. So, but I mean, I could be wrong. I mean, I don't, I have not kept tabs on schools for emotionally disturbed children, but I was surprised to hear that they sent him that far. Plus, if it was like the 40s. The 50s, yeah. The 50s, maybe there weren't that many yet. Yeah. Actually, no, I feel like the 50s was like peak time for those special schools. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like peak time for like, <laughs> like sending your kid away. Yeah. yeah. Like you catch your kids smoking and you're like, oh shit, gotta like ship you off to this school for emotionally disturbed children. Mm-hmm. Um, Very true. Anyway. But unfortunately, it's while he's away, you know, from maybe more adult supervision that he starts acting on his strong sexual impulses toward children. And at the age of 13, he rapes a 12-year-old girl, but would later claim it was consensual. Mm. He stayed at that school until he was 15, but was discharged and sent back to his foster parents, again, in and out of public and private schools. At the age of 16, Peter starts his crime spree. So, well, technically his crime spree already started with his sexual assault, but his uh, bigger crime spree, I guess, escalated crime spree. So his parents had gifted him with a red and white Schwinn bicycle, and Peter would go on frequent bike rides around the city. His parents thought it was his way to get some air, but Peter's intentions were far more sinister. He rode around molesting children for months. Ew. Yeah. 
Although this wouldn't be known until after his arrest, Peter confessed to these crimes and even showed the police every spot where he had committed these offenses. Oh, that's... Uh, and like in one article, it said he had done that a dozen times. And in another article I read, it said he had done that dozens of times. So I don't know which one is accurate. Okay. But let's say at least a dozen, which is a dozen too many. So... Yep. Yeah, we'll agree on that. Mm. So as with most criminals, Peter's crimes escalated. And on September 15th, 1956, he commits his first murder when he lures seven-year-old Wayne Millette away from exhibition place and strangles him. The body wasn't found until the next morning. There was apparently no sexual assault, but two bite marks were found on his body, one uh, on the calf and the other on the buttocks. Peter had- Ew. Yeah, I know. So, I mean, it's not sexual assault, but it's, it is of sexual nature, yeah. uh, the crime. Peter had scattered pennies all around the body. What does that Weird. mean, do you think? Like, well, you put coins with a dead person so that they can pay the, uh, what's the, in the river sticks, like in Hades, it's oh. like an old superstition and they can pay the, the fairy, the fairy ghost. <laughs> I don't fucking know. Yeah. The, the demon who rose the fairy yeah. across <laughs> the river sticks. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't, I forgot That could that. be what. Where, what he was trying to do. I don't know. Yeah. That's fucking creepy. Yeah. I hate it. Um, okay, so here I have to give an important sidebar to the story. And I'll give updates also as I give updates on Peter. But this is actually like a super important sidebar. So after Wayne Millette is found dead, there was a 14-year-old boy named Ron Moffat who was interrogated for this murder. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think he also had a bike. And so... I, I don't remember how they ended up like pointing the finger at this kid, but he ended up being interrogated. Um, but he did have a solid alibi because he was with several of his friends um, at the movies when the murder happened. But I think like they weren't actually sure when the murder happened because like, remember like Wayne went missing, but his body wasn't found until the next morning. So I think there was also like question about, about that. But anyway, but the police relentlessly questioned him mm -hmm. until you guessed it, a false confession. Uh, happened and ron was found guilty and sentenced to youth detention no yeah so yeah so so while peter woodcock is molesting and now murdering children they send the wrong boy to juvenile detention um okay so now back to what peter's up to though so less than a month later on october 6th peter was riding his bike in cabbage town so cabbage town is a, it's a neighborhood of toronto you know how sometimes you don't think like something sounds weird until so you explain mm -hmm. it to someone and you're like, I guess it's a weird name for something. Yeah. So like, yeah. So there's, there's a neighborhood in Toronto called Cabbage Town. Okay. And the name derives from the Irish immigrants who moved to the neighborhood beginning in the late 1840s, said to have been so poor that they grew cabbage in their front yards. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why it's called Cabbage Town. Checks out, checks out. Thank you, Wikipedia. <laughs> um, so yeah, so anyway, so Peter is in Cabbage Town uh, on October 6th when he meets nine-year-old Gary Morris. He gives Gary a ride on his bike to Cherry Beach, uh, which is about like a 20-minute bike ride just south of, uh, of Cabbage Town. And he proceeds to strangle and beat the boy to death. Oh, no. The cause of death was actually a rupture of the liver from being beaten oh, so badly. Oh, my God. Uh, Morris was found with a bite mark on his neck and paper clips scattered around the body. That one, I just, I don't, I don't, I, I don't get it at all. I mean, I don't I, think that you can use that as currency. No, 
And I mean, also, I we cannot try to find a rational reason for something that is utterly crazy. But I mean, that's like one detail that really bothered me. I was like, but why? In both Gary and Wayne's cases, their clothes had been removed, but they had later been redressed by the killer. Oh. Okay, so I'm going to continue my sidebar about Ron Moffat from earlier, okay. the 14 year old okay. who was yes. who was uh, convicted. So at this point. After this second murder, Ron Moffat had already been arrested, but police realized it was likely a serial offender. So that's when they were like, oh, Ron was in jail when the second murder happened with the paper clips, the pennies, like yeah. the way that the bodies had been found. Like they were like, this was done by the same person. Even then they didn't release Ron Moffat. Why? Even though at that point there was serious reasonable doubt that this kid had not done it because he was already in custody. Yeah. They, yeah. Anyway, just that's fuck garbage. So Peter's third murder occurred on January 19th, 1957. So again, Peter was riding his bike when he approached four-year-old Carol Voice and offered her a ride. Okay, this part's really tough, by the way. So you, like anybody listening, you might want to skip like, I had like 15 to 20 seconds. So he drove her under the Bloor viaduct where he choked her until she became unconscious, undressed her, molested her, and sexually assaulted her with a tree branch. And this was actually her cause of death. Oh my god. Oh fuck. Yeah. Hate it. I would definitely not want to be the police officer or the person who finds that body. Like I just yeah. can't think of anything worse. Yeah, that's yeah, that's very, um, very yeah, but the so the the one positive thing, the only positive thing to come out of this murder is that there were a lot of witnesses at this time who saw Peter leaving the crime scene. So he had brought her like behind like a or like under a viaduct, right? Like in a, mm-hmm. in a hidden area. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he left, like he like took his bike and like was seen leaving that area. And he apparently even told someone who was standing there, quote, if they find a body back there, they're going to think it was me end quote and then they found a body so then the people were like well it was fucking that guy like so a very accurate composite composite sketch could be made of him and his bike and he was apprehended two days later oh that's amazing yeah uh he immediately confessed to all three murders and 12 molestations he had committed but again there could have been more so apparently during his arrest he said my fear was that mother would find out mother was my biggest fear i didn't know if the police would let her at me Hmm. yeah so um Hmm. in one article i i read they phrased it like he confessed uh in exchange for the police saying we won't let your mom hit you for telling us the truth which I don't know if that's true or not. Um, anyway. Very strange. Uh, so he was tried for the murder of Carol Voice, but not for the other murders. And I'm wondering if it's because there were just no witnesses and so they yeah. couldn't really corroborate it. I'm not really sure. Um, after just a four-day trial, it took the jury two hours to find him not guilty by reason of insanity. He was sent to a maximum security psychiatric institution called the Penetanguishene Mental Health Center in the Oak Ridge Division. Uh, it's two hours north of Toronto. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so basically, I think he like, I think he spoke in court and I think it was just very obvious that he was deranged. And they also talked about his past. They talked about his past abuse, everything he had gone through. And I think they were like, I think they were like, this kid's crazy. Like, yeah, he's a criminal, but he's crazy. So we're going to send him to the right place. Okay, finally, for Ron Moffat, there is justice (laughs) because Peter would actually serve as a witness for the defense in Ron Moffat's case. So Peter Woodcock was called okay. to, the, to the stand and he testified saying, I killed Wayne Millette. It was Whoa. me. This guy didn't do it. And so that finally permitted Ron to go free. He was found not guilty. Whoa. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. 
super weird but anyway. huh. it just sucks that it took that long like this i i think this kid spent yeah. like i think he spent like two years in juvenile detention that's so fucked up like oh my gosh yeah poor yeah. ron another victim yeah okay weird. i wonder if he did that because like when you said that he did the pennies and then he did the paper clips my first thought was i wonder if he did the paper clips because he was like this will be like my signature like i want people to know that it was me yeah maybe oh actually yeah that, that actually makes sense wonder like whatever he had in his pockets yeah he was just like fuck i don't have any pennies i spent all my pennies on this first murder so oh, no. like yeah like what that's so scary yeah ew i hate him yeah Ugh. okay so the next part of the story is also crazy there's so, more there's more so Ooh. yeah so now i have to mention I have to talk about his institutionalization. So from 1957 to the late 1980s, Woodcock stayed at the Oak Ridge Division where he received all types of treatment for his psychopathy, including experimental treatments. In the 1960s, he underwent LSD treatments and was given several, quote, personality breaking, yeah, personality breaking drugs, unquote, and lived in a giant dark artificial womb for several days. Are you kidding? No. He was, what? wait, this part's crazier. He was also part of an experiment called the 100 Day Hayden, where 44 inmates, either psychopaths or people suffering from schizophrenia, were put in a room together in the hopes that this would increase their levels of empathy. How so, did that go? <laughs> I don't know. I like tried reading a report of it online and apparently it was not successful because for some people, it worked in the sense that it gave them a little bit more empathy. And for others, it just taught them more how to fake having empathy, which as a psychopath is extremely dangerous. Yeah. And like, I don't think schizophrenic people are necessarily lacking in empathy. Yeah. So it seems like all they did was put a bunch of people who literally had no empathy in with schizophrenic people. And I'm just glad that they all survived. I mean, to be frank, if yeah. they did. I hope they did. But That's yeah. quite alarming. Yeah. Anyway, so one third of the participants in that in that experiment had murdered someone. So that's another thing too. If you had told me like just the psychopaths who have murdered, that's probably one thing. But like you just you put mentally yeah. ill people with criminals. Just yes, like, I mean exactly. <laughs> you're like you put someone in there just suffering with schizophrenia, and you're like, oh, by the way, uh, your roommate um, just kills for fun. Yeah, <laughs> you guys are gonna help each other though. <laughs> And oh you're like, God. what? No, I'm just here because like I yell at like cats and think that they're talking to me, but I would never hurt them. Oh my God. Yeah, it was knocking futs. Knocking uh, futs. That's as right. Dickie Roberts would say. But Ooh, yeah, maybe we should call this Dickie Roberts' former child star. <laughs> That's a reference. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, I love that movie. So yeah, so this experiment was actually developed by Harvard psychologist and former CIA interrogation and psychological warfare expert. Oh no. Such Here's a dangerous combination. <laughs> oh no, Harvard, <laughs> no. Just because someone's rich doesn't mean you have to let them go there. I, honestly, I think we could do an, an episode like on Ivy League crimes. And like Canada doesn't have an Ivy League, but we have some like fancy schmancy universities. So like we could 
yeah. you probably said yourself, maybe this therapy worked for some of the inmates or patients, but not Peter. He continued to target other inmates that had a low IQ and convinced them that in exchange for oral sex and cigarettes, he would initiate them into his imaginary alien gang that he called the Brotherhood. Gross. Yeah. Okay, so I don't know how this happened. Oh no. But eventually, Peter gets transferred to a lower security institution in Brockville. Mm-hmm. While he's there, the staff indulge him by taking him to the Smith Falls Railway Museum. And they even take him to go see. Hold on. You know what? I'm going to have you guess. It's the early 1990s. Mm-hmm. He's a serial killer and a psychopath. Uh huh. They take him to go see a movie in theaters. What movie is it? Oh my God. In the early 90s? Yeah. The Silence of the Lambs? No! Yeah, yeah. Just like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. The dumbest thing I've ever heard. Um, So yeah. That is fucking amazing. (laughs) Oh. Oh no. I knew you would get it. I was like, you know what? I'm gonna gonna let her guess because she's gonna get it. So, okay. So they even start considering giving him a day pass. So... Basically, some of these institutions, um, and actually some prisons as well in Canada, like after a while, you can get a supervised day pass. So somebody mm-hmm. like signs you out and you can go out, you could even like go shopping, you could do things, have dinner with your family, but you have to go back to prison, you know, later that night or the next morning or actually no, it's probably not overnight, but anyway. So they start considering it because they already moved him to a low security facility. He's not that much of a problem other than the mm-hmm. fact, I guess, that he like sexually traffics like other inmates, but they're right. like, yeah, oh, whatever, it's fine. Oh my God. I just, I still can't believe the size of the lambs thing, but anyway. Okay. But two very important things also happen around this time. He changes his name to David Michael Kruger. Uh, okay. Literally changes his name to the most serial killer fucking name I've ever heard. And he rekindles his friendship with a former inmate named Bruce Hamill. So they had been together at Oak Ridge. Okay. Using the same old tricks, Peter tells Bruce that the alien brotherhood will solve his problems if Bruce helps him kill another inmate named Dennis Kerr. Okay. The motive for the crime was apparently that Peter had fallen in love with Dennis, but that Dennis had rejected his sexual advances. So he's like, well, now I want to have this guy killed. Peter's day pass is granted. And on July 13th, 1991, for the first time since January 1957, Peter is out in public. Bruce is the one to pick up Peter at the Brockville Institution and signs him out. Peter had told him to buy weapons before meeting him, and Bruce had brought with him a plumber's wrench, a hatchet, and knives. Within hours, hours of his supervised release, Peter convinces Dennis Kerr to meet him in the woods, which were on the institution's grounds. There, Peter and Bruce begin to beat him to death and mutilate his body. They also sodomized the corpse and nearly decapitated his head. Oh my God. Immediately after the murder, Peter walked to a police station just a few minutes away and turned himself in. Meanwhile, Hamill took a handful of over-the-counter sleeping pills and waited for the aliens to come. They didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. According to the Toronto Star, quote, the last time he killed someone, Peter Woodcock was nearly blind and could barely hear, end quote. How fucking scary is that, by the way? You're in an institution for decades. You're allowed to go out once and you're like, I'm going to spend my day out to go kill someone, even though I'm so old. I can barely hear and I can barely see anything. Oh my God. That's How terrifying so is that? Creepy 
So he was returned to the Oak Ridge Division where he spent the rest of his life. Uh, Quote, in his later years, he was a frail looking man who followed Toronto news closely, listened to shortwave radio broadcasts, and made a quiet life for himself behind the barred doors and double locks of the Penetang Institution. He had no family. His death was reported to his lawyer by another serial killer, end quote. Peter Woodcock died of natural causes on his 71st birthday, March 5th, 2010. Whoa. And that is the story of Peter Woodcock, also known as David Michael Kruger, but I refuse to call him that because it's fucking stupid. So he was a young fucking serial killer only to also become an old ass killer. That's fascinating. That is so fucking creepy. Ew, 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 ew. I know. I just, I just, I just, I just, it's so gross, but yeah. That is just horrifying. He was just a a fucking predator. Yeah, that's right. And to me, it's also crazy when you, when you think that like he spent, yeah, like he spent so much time in an institution. He went through every single kind of treatment imaginable, like even the experimental ones. Like he went through the traditional ones, but also like the quote unquote crazy ones, like, like the, um, womb yeah the womb womb. like even the ones that are like uh not experimental but just like out there like basically like Mm -hmm. like that could work like you never know i mean maybe being reborn from a fake womb was what he needed but i guess not yeah but they tried it basically yeah they tried everything i mean as good a guess as anything else i suppose yeah but that's what i mean it's like but i find i think that's like so rare to hear a story of a child murderer like a child who who commits violence who cannot be rehabilitated like that's so so rare I think Mm -hmm. and like I think he is the exception to that rule like I think clearly I I don't know if maybe if he had lived in this day and age they would have done I don't know maybe there would have been a better treatment but yeah I don't know wow what a weird story I feel like but yeah again to your point not pure evil someone who had a lot of trauma in his childhood that like prevented him from attaching to people in a normal way so of course he's gonna go around murdering and harming oh up until the very end up until the very end what a oh my god imagine that it's the 90s and you're going to see fucking silence of the lambs in movie theaters and you see that guy and he's got like you know a couple like people in scrubs sitting on either side of him and he's just like cuckoo looking as hell i mean i'll send you a photo of him but he, yeah. he does look um, popcorn i am the Eggman looking at you. you yeah yeah ew in today's times i would see that and be like oh this is probably a, a like a stunt pulled by the movie company like when all those clowns were coming out of the woodwork and shit like that yeah <laughs> but anyway in the olden times it would have been scary as fuck and real yeah. Right, to be scared. I want to give a shout out to the the staff at the Brockville Institution who mm-hmm. um, took him to go see Silence of the Lambs. Um, if you're listening right now, um, what the fuck is your... What is wrong with you? Take uh, him to see Finding Nemo. I don't know baby what was geniuses. at that time. Baby geniuses, good call. Um, you know, Wasn't March that the year the that Penguins. Philadelphia came out? 1991 Philadelphia with Tom Hanks and Denzel. No idea. I think that I think that was the same year because I think it won the Oscar or whatever. Like, oh my god. Yeah, uh, you can have empathy watching that movie. Like, that's a very touching movie. Yeah, but he was probably watching Silence of the Lambs, being like, father. Oh. <laughs> um, 
Oh my god. <laughs> it's it is a miracle that he didn't also try and cook the person that he murdered. Um, yeah. Oh god. Ew. Uh yeah, I'm I wanna kind of start doing that. Like, what was the Oscar-winning film when we're talking about a case? Because I spent an inordinate amount of time trying to find the horoscope for the day that my person was born. Oh. I don't know why, I just like really wanted to. And I am this close to setting myself up with an account for the Vogue archives. Um, because I, I I almost had when I was like, oh my God, I could see this horoscope, but you have to like pay to see it. Oh. Um, but I did see like, you know, all these articles about like what fur to wear now and the fashion spotlight was on Yves Saint Laurent and wearing corduroy skirt suits. So um, anyway, I'm about to subscribe to that so that I can do a little overview of what Vogue was talking about at the time of of the crimes we talk about. Very good. Sorry, I, I just uh, enjoys that. I just checked real quick and best picture in 1991 at the Oscars was Dances with Wolves. <laughs> but Ghost was nominated, Awakenings oh. was nominated, The Godfather Part 3, and Goodfellas. Wow. Well, I'm glad he didn't see some of those, but Dances with Wolves probably would have been a nice one, right? That's just like romance. I have no idea. Yeah. Kevin oh, Costner. it was the same year like Kathy Bates won Best Actress for Misery. Oh, I didn't know she won for that. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, I gotta yeah. check that film out. So anyway. Okay. Well, that's just so deeply upsetting. Yeah. It actually makes mine seem less upsetting. Oh. So that's kind of interesting. (laughs) Okay. So, okay. (laughs) Let me tell you about this story. And I will start out by saying that a serial killer is defined by the FBI as somebody who commits three or more murders. And I'm just opening with that because when I was searching, like, youngest serial killer in America, there were a lot that were just like, maybe they killed one person. And I was like, guys, can we all just get on board with that's not what serial means? Um, It's a series. So, So anyway, I looked it up to be sure if two fit the bill, but no, it has to be three according to the FBI. And it has to be on, on, on separate occasions, right? It can't be all at once. Oh, I, all it said for the FBI was it has to be three or more murders. One of them had to be committed stateside and that was all it said. Okay. Okay. Maybe over like, yeah, I guess that, I guess it would depend maybe location versus timeline. Cause you could like be a, but then that's a spree killer. Yeah. Or like, what's the difference between a spree killer and a mass murderer? Okay, in my mind, a mass murderer is at one place, like the mall, and a spree killer is going from mall to mall. Oh, okay. But then a serial killer, it's like mall to mall, but on killer, different weekends. Yeah. A serial killer hits the same mall once every two months. Yeah, okay. There we go. This episode is sponsored by Mall of America. Oh my God. Oh, okay, so... <laughs> Well, mine takes place in the 80s, so it just felt, you know, that's when malls were, like, really popping off. So I do, I picture malls as as part of this era. So Craig Chandler Price was born October 11th, 1973, a Libra, in Cambridge, Mass, to John and Shirley Price. He was the youngest of three kids. His family was devout Baptists. His parents met in church, and they were, like, in the same choir and, like, cutesy shit. So when Craig was five, a pastor told Shirley 
that there was something important that he would do and that he was destined for greatness. Oh, God. Shirley was like, no, he's just a little goofball and moved past it. Uh, So it was around this time that the family moved to Warwick, Rhode Island, and they lived in a neighborhood called Buttonwoods. Yeah, it's adorable. What? I just imagine all the trees that are just covered in different buttons and you could just pick them off and put them on your sweater. So that's Buttonwoods. And that's about the cutest thing that happens in this particular tale. So it's all downhill from here. It's all downhill from Buttonwoods. Uh, in Rhode Island, Shirley held two jobs. She was a clerical worker at like a law office or something. And she also worked at a Kmart. Um, John worked at Pepsi Cola Company as a manager which means that Craig was constantly head to toe in Pepsi gear, which is kind of hilarious to think about. Like he was just always wearing Pepsi swag. Also motive for murder. Jesus Christ. I know, right? (laughs) I know, right? And so actually let me um, pause there and say that almost all of my information came from this incredible three-part article written in 2004. So it was written for the Providence Journal by Mark Arsenault. So a lot of these details like, in his article, he mentioned that Craig, you know, always steered clear of Coke products. And I'm just, I don't know. I was like, okay, I don't care, Mark. But everything else man. he wrote, he was a Pepsi man. So it really very, upset his father. They had a rift. He was very, no, because he worked at Pepsi. Oh, sorry. I thought he worked for, sorry. I thought he worked for Coca-Cola. He worked, he worked for, for Pepsi-Cola. Pepsi-Cola. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Okay. BB, no. So he was very proud of his dad for working at Pepsi. And he okay. was always like, swiggity swaggity, I've got Pepsi stickers on every surface. So, <laughs> French Canadians fucking love Pepsi. God, that is un-American and thus makes sense. <laughs> um, so growing up, Craig was funny. Um, people said he was a storyteller. He was popular. People like gravitated towards him and, and he was very likable. But he was also accident prone red flag. I know. I was like, was he accident prone or was he having the shit beaten out of him by a family member? But, oh, but that, I mean, that was just my thought. And like this guy's article was pretty in depth. So I don't know, maybe that's wrong, but and also, just, what kind of accidents are we talking about? Because here we go. Yeah. First accident, he wandered out of the house and was hit by a car when he was three. Oh no. The second accident which isn't an accident, literally said he was hit on the head with a rock when he was seven. So I'm like, did that rock fall off of like a fucking mountainside or did someone hit him with a rock? Well, my sister accidentally hit me with a rock in the head. Yeah. (gasps) Oh, baby. And you've killed how many people? I, (laughs) uh, none so far, but yeah, like we were, yeah, we were on this like I don't know, like dirt mountain, which we used to call flower mountain as children anyway. And mm-hmm. my sister just like, I'm eight. I think my sister's like six. She picks up a rock and she just like throws it in my direction okay. and it hit that. me in the head. Okay. Yeah. That's a good point. So yes, maybe someone threw a rock in his general direction and his head caught it. And then <laughs> by the time he was like around age nine or 10, he fell off a chair and broke his collarbone. Okay. Again, yeah. kids are weird. Kids do weird, kids climb shit and jump off shit and break shit. So who knows? But anyway, I just thought that was kind of weird. Yeah. I could see how you can interpret that Mm -hmm. a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, "Mm, maybe. So he loved football, baseball, 
hard rock, rap, and playing guitar. He was described as smart, but he didn't try. So he he had to repeat the seventh grade, even though he's like very intelligent. If Um, I were his mother, I'd go back to that pastor and I'd be like, you told me he was destined for great things. And now he's repeating the seventh grade. I want my money back. I don't know. Even his mom, I found that so weird when the mom said her reaction was like, no, he's not. He's just funny and goofy. I'm like, damn, girl, support your son. (laughs) Like, you should be like, hell yeah, he is. He's great. I love him. But she was like, I don't know. He's just kind of like weird. So anyway, (laughs) Shirley, I I, I have questions towards Shirley. Okay. So he's smart. He doesn't try hard. He was also physically intimidating. 200 pounds by age 13. He was enormous uh one article about him described him as a hulking boy so yeah he was very tall very large holy crap yeah so as a teenager in buttonwoods around 12 to 13 he discovered pot drinking smoking and also lsd and that's young to try lsd i know right so one time he came home he was tripping balls his mom threw him in the car, basically kidnapped him to Boston, where her family was from, because they came from Cambridge. So she drove him to Boston, which is not very far from Rhode Island. And she took him to his aunt and his grandmother's, and they sat him down and basically, like, did a weird drug exorcism on him, where they just screamed, like, scripture, like, Bible passages at him. And he he was obviously tripping, so he was just having, like, crazy hallucinations of the things they were yelling at him. But ultimately, at the end, they cried and hugged him and told him he was cured of his want for drugs. Well, thank God for that. He wasn't cured, BB. Oh, shit. It was a waste of time, sadly. You don't say. Yeah, so he was deaf not cured. He uh, continued to abuse LSD and smoke a shit ton of pot and by fifth by the age of 15 he was taking lsd every day whoa every day which is like how do you even get that but whatever i was i was i was just <laughs> gonna ask that where is he getting this lsd idk maybe he made that up but whatever that's what this article said he was taking it every goddamn day so in the fall of 1988 when he was 14 years old he was arrested for breaking and entering and he was just put on probation he, like, broke into a house with two of his friends. And then in July of 1989, when he was 15, he had a fight with his sister and the cops were called. So that's kind of his criminal history. But is it? Oh. Rewind to July of 1987 when Craig was 13. Oh, no. Okay. He's going into seventh grade again, and he's hanging out with his friends over the summer. So it's July in Rhode Island, 87. He was playing football in the street with some of his friends when he said that he heard a man call him a racial slur. So uh, Craig is black, by the way. Okay. Um, So he says he heard a man utter a racial slur. The man was parked in front of Craig's neighbor's house, this woman named Becky Spencer. He didn't do anything. He was very, like, upset, hurt, obviously, angry, but he didn't do anything at the time. Then a week later, he's playing in the street again with some friends. Craig claims that another man or possibly the same man. I'm not sure if he thought they were one and the same or what, but a man drove by, called him a racial slur, and again, Craig did nothing. He was super fucking angry, but he didn't do anything. He basically just went home and thought obsessively 
about this man and was angry at him, angry at himself for not doing anything in the moment or saying anything to defend himself. He felt weak, impotent, and just like full of this rage that he couldn't get a handle on. So that night, he was super duper fucking high, but only on pot, apparently. But still, he's stunned out of his mind. So he just spends hours working himself into a really deep, dark rage, thinking about this man or men who shouted slurs at him, and he decides he wants to kill these people. And he thinks that they are visiting his neighbor, Becky. So based on, cause like the one guy was parked in front of her house and I guess he maybe thought it was the same guy or like also saw that car near the house or whatever. But for some reason he thinks that these people are visiting his neighbor, Becky and like staying at her house. So he dresses in all black and he sneaks out of his home. So press pause on Craig. And I will talk about Becky Spencer for a second. Okay. Oh, this is Craig's neighbor. Becky Spencer was 27 years old, divorced mom of two. She lived in Craig's neighborhood. She lived with her brother, Carl, and her two kids from her marriage. In July of 1987, she and Carl and the kids were all getting ready to move out to a new house. On this night, the kids were with their dad. The house was mostly packed up. Carl was working the night shift. So Becky spent um, a couple hours with friends who like helped her pack up stuff. They went and got ice cream, just did random shit. And they left around midnight and Becky was alone. So the house being empty of furniture, Becky puts on her pajamas and falls asleep in front of the TV on the living room floor. She literally just like laid down under a blanket, watches VH1 until she falls asleep. Okay, so Craig is dressed all in black. He goes to her house and he notices that there's no car outside anymore. So he's even more angry because he missed his opportunity to find these men. He's like, oh, they left. What the fuck am I supposed to do now? So he decides that he's going to break in and vandalize the house instead. He's got all this pent up anger and he like needs to do something with it. So the back door is open. He walks into the house and he sees Becky laying on the floor in front of the TV. And since he's so fucking high, he kind of bops around the house a little bit being creepy. Like, he sits in a chair and ponders what to do. He stands over her body for a while. Like, she's a lot, like, he just stands over her sleeping form and then is like, oh, I I just nodded off there for a second because I'm high as shit. So he's just being weird walking around this house. And he's like, maybe I should light it on fire. Maybe, oh, I don't have any matches. Like, maybe I should try and explode something. And he's just kind of looking around and he sees- Wait, sorry, can I ask you a question real quick? Yeah. Do you believe that he was high? Because in my experience, it's very difficult to be high and angry. I sort of do. And we can, let's table that until the end because I kind of agree with you. But at the same time, like I kind of get it from him. Okay. Especially if he's all fucked up from, because LSD, it's not like you don't take it one time and it's a done deal. Like, yeah, it stays in your like spinal fluid, like it messes up your brain, like blah, blah, blah. So in that context, I kind of do. Okay. But, okay. Yeah, we can circle back to that. Okay. But so he's just being weird inside this house and he's walking around and he finds a knife. And that's when he decides that murder is inevitable and it's what he has to do. So he takes the knife, he goes into the living room and he stabs Becky 58 times. What? Until he's sure that she's dead. 
I mean, he would he could have been sure after like three times. Let's be yeah. real. Like it's a lot of times. And by the way, according to what he said, or maybe someone fucking found this out by looking at the TV guide. Apparently when this was happening, Let's Dance by David Bowie was what was playing on VH1, which is just so creepy. I hate it. I hate it. Yeah. It really freaks me out. Yeah. Mm. It's like when I found out that Paul Bernardo used to play a uh, Romeo and Juliet by Dire Straits when he was like yeah. doing fucked up shit. Yeah. I really like that song. So anyway, he stabs Becky 58 times. The point of the knife breaks off in her shoulder. Oh my God. And this was a carving knife with a 10 inch blade, by the way, which is just so fucking scary. So he murders her. He runs back to his house. He st- says he stands in his backyard and it's just like fucking crying and panicking, takes all his clothes off, puts them in a bag and hides it in the attic of his house and like washes the blood from him and basically goes to bed, pretends nothing has happened. So the next day, like, or maybe it's not exactly, no, I think it would because the brother was there. So when the police come to investigate, it's like crawling with cops and he's just freaking out. Like, they're gonna catch me. They're gonna find out it was me. I'm sure I left like evidence and blah, 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 but nothing happens. So during the course of the investigation, a couple kids on the street told the cops about the man who had yelled at them from his car. The same man that Craig said was, was yelling slurs at him. Oh. Um, but I don't think they mentioned that, but they were like, you know, the cops said, oh, was anyone here you didn't recognize? And they said, this man yelled at us from the car. So Craig takes that and runs with it, provides a two-page long statement describing the same man and saying that he asked Craig about the woman in the brown house, which was Becky. Oh, no. So he just totally made that up. But like, can you even believe, like, he's 13 and he's that calculating. He like pretends not to know her name. He's like, oh yeah, he was asking me about the lady in the brown house there. I don't know her. So it's chilling. That's chilling. Yeah. As the investigation continues, Craig just does what everyone else does. He, when other people say they're scared, he's like, me too. Um, When other people are like expressing interest in the case, he just goes along with it. So he knows it's like, looks bad to not be interested looks Mm. bad to be too interested. So he just like essentially mirrors everybody around him and the case goes cold. So Craig is just like, goes on, try and is like, I guess I'm going to forget about that and like try and bury it deep inside me. So anyway, so the case goes cold. The end, JK, because he's a serial killer. (laughs) Jesus. God, Caitlin. So now we're in. 1989, and Craig is 15. Okay. In this year, we're talking about Joan, a 39-year-old widow, and her daughters, Jennifer and Melissa. They uh, also lived in Craig's neighborhood. He first saw them on a summer day, not unlike the day he murdered Becky Spencer. They were in the neighborhood riding bikes, and one of the girls' bike chain slipped off, so he offered to help and put the chain back in its place. He says he got a bad vibe from Joan, the mom, and felt that she assumed that he would steal the bike because he was black. So okay, this is his, yeah, this is his report of his interaction with her. She didn't say or do anything, but he just felt like she was, you know, nervous, judging him, assuming that he was going to do something. Um, he could be right about that. Totally could be. Yeah. 
I would not be surprised at all. Like fucking, it was the late eighties. It was Rhode Island. It was a middle-class neighborhood. Um, definitely possible. Weeks pass. Craig goes to a beach party. He's high on LSD. He's smoked a ton of pot as always. And at this party, he sees another kid, um, like kid from his school. And he's heard that this kid likes racist jokes. Mm. Now, the kid was not telling racist jokes at the party or being overtly racist, but Craig was just looking at him and thinking about his alleged enjoyment of racism and getting himself fucking pissed off while he's high. So after the party, he goes home and he's just worked up. He's put himself into a bit of a state. And as he's walking towards his house, he looks and sees his neighbor, Joan Heaton, looking out her window. And after their last interaction, he felt she was looking at him with suspicion, again, because of his race. He wrote in a letter later on, her demeanor instantly tapped into the chaotic anger, rage, and fury I had buried within. So he perceives that his neighbor is watching him because she's worried he might be doing something criminal because of his race. So he goes home. What if she had like a sixth sense? And she felt that he was a murderer. Then she was dumb and she should have not stared at him. True, true. She was probably just (laughs) racist. (laughs) If I think someone's a murderer, guess what they're never going to see me do? Looking at them ever. (laughs) Like, are you kidding? That's a good point. Step one, don't look at someone you think is a murderer. And don't look at them with your fucking resting bitch face Joan eyes, okay? (laughs) Don't do it. So, what does Craig do? He goes home and smokes more jazz cigarettes. I mean, I'm just like, I feel... (laughs) I I have the urge to cough just reading about how much he is apparently smoking pop, but whatever. So that's what he does. He goes home and he smokes more until he decides he's so fucking worked up and feels like all these slights against him are just like building up everyone's racist, everyone's looking at him and thinking these thoughts, blah, blah, blah. He decides that he has to kill Joan and that's the only way he's going to feel better. He feels like he's going to be completely overtaken by this rage and anger unless he kills her. So he puts on his customary head-to-toe black outfit, including, by the way, white sneakers that he covers in black electrical tape, which is kind of hilarious to think about. Also, can we just really quickly sidebar, go back to earlier, now that you know Craig is a massive 200 pound 12 year old covered in pepsi stickers like yeah murdering people is that just the stuff of nightmares or what yeah yeah so he's wearing his all black outfit he goes sneaks around to joan's yard he cuts the screen of the open kitchen window and he like cut i think he actually just cuts it so that he can reach the the like clips and he takes it out which is pretty smart Also, what the fuck size is this window that this enormous person can fit through it? Yeah. Anyway, he takes his shoes off and he climbs through the window. So he's in his mind, he's going to kill Joan. He doesn't know that she's a widow. So he's actually like thinking he's going to have to kill her husband too. And he's fine with. So he's making his way to her room. Now, while he's going there, he like bumped into something. Um, You know, he's making a little bit of noise. So he stops to make sure that like no one's hurt him and keeps going. Now suddenly he hears footsteps coming down the hallway and he presses himself against the wall, tries to like flatten himself, I guess, but again, he's huge. Yeah. And it was Joan's daughter, Melissa, 
who I, the daughters were third grade age and fifth grade age, but I can't remember which was which. Okay. Um, so she's a, she's a child. She's either like nine or 11. Yeah. So it's Melissa walking down the hallway and she touches his stomach. (gasps) And I'm, in my mind, it's because she's walking down the hallway, feeling along the wall because she can't see. Yeah. She feels him immediately like pulls back, runs down the hall, turns on the light and sees him there. Before she can scream, Craig grabs her, covers her mouth. He He's like, doesn't know what to do. He's like, this is not part of my plan. What the fuck? So he carries her down the hall, but then he trips and drops the knife that he's brought from his house. So Melissa's, he drops her and she screams, which wakes up Joan. So Joan bursts out of her room and Craig is like, okay, I have to go. Like Joan's here, goes for it. At which point Melissa runs for the phone. So after he basically like body slams Joan and kind of like knocks the wind out of her, goes back to Melissa, chases her into the kitchen and stabs her. No. Then. No. Yeah. Then he goes back to Joan and they fight. They're struggling. He drops the knife again. So he's like feeling for it. The light is like out at this point. So he turns it back on and he sees the knife on the ground. So he goes to pick it up. And when he stands up, the other daughter, Jennifer, is kneeling next to her mom. And Craig describes being angry that the kids had become part of this. And he's like, now they all have to die. So there actually wasn't a description of what happened after that. He just says he turned the light out and he stabs them. I don't know how it happens, what goes down, but he flicks off the light and he goes for it. So that's horrifying. Yeah. Horrifying. Yes. So he leaves the house. He's in a complete panic. He grabs the knife he brought with him. And then also the other knives and like that are in a knife block, because I think he touched one of those two or something. So he takes their whole knife block, the knife he brought with him, runs out of the house and he throws them in his yard. There's like a bunch of trash and shit, like by the shed. And he just tosses it in there. And then he actually went back to the house to try and clean up the scene because he knows he left like a a fuck ton of evidence and all that kind of stuff. So the scene is found a couple of days later because of course no one can reach the family and it is a fucking mess. There were prints, there's a palm print, there are sock prints, there's blood that's like obviously not from the victims, there's band-aid wrappers and the bodies had been covered in blankets and rugs. So when he went back to the scene, he Hmm. like couldn't deal with it and covered them up. Melissa had been stabbed seven times. Oh my God. Joan, the mom, had 11 stab wounds and Jennifer had 62 stab wounds. And the, the piece of the blade was snapped off in her neck. Oh my God. Isn't, so you can kind of like, he see, he goes there to kill Joan He kills Melissa to stop her from calling the cops, but then Jennifer really fucking pisses him off, as he describes. And that definitely comes through. Oh, they're children. They're children. They're children, and it's the second murder over this two-year period in this neighborhood that has no fucking explanation, so people are terrified. Yeah. 26 officers are assigned to this case, and police right away start questioning any anyone they come across in the neighborhood, like that's a man or a boy who has injuries to their hands or arms. 
because yeah. of the blood evidence and the band-aids they're putting two and two together so you know they see this one kid who's got like a cut on his arm they take him in for questioning he's not the guy so one officer who actually knows craig from playing local sports sees him walking around with a bunch of friends. He's got gauze wrapped around his finger. He asks him about it. Craig claims he fell on a broken bottle and didn't tell his parents because he didn't want to go to the doctor. He doesn't like needles, but it doesn't really sit right. So they bring him in for questioning four days later and he admits, you're right. I got this wound because I was breaking into a car, but they still don't fucking believe him. So one week later, they bring him in again and they're like, your story was bullshit. The car you said you broke into, like we we talked to, it was a Ford. They're like, we talked to a Ford dealership. This is anti-shatter glass. So it wouldn't have cut you in this way that you said it did. They tell him that there's a ton of evidence from the crime scene. And he's like, whatever, I wasn't there. It doesn't matter. Like, I'm not scared. And they're like, this guy fucking did it. They just know. So they get a search warrant and the next morning at 7.30, they show up and search his house and guess what the fuck they find? All those nice. knives. Yeah. All of the knives that he had thrown into the shed and he was arrested on the spot. So he's arrested, it's 1989 for the four murders because he killed obviously Joan and her two daughters and he confesses to Becky's murder. I don't think they even asked him about it. He just confessed to it. He was arrested one month before his 16th birthday. And as such, he was tried and convicted as a minor. Rhode Island law did not allow juveniles to be held past age 21, no matter what crime they committed. So according to the law that was in place, he could serve at most five years. So he was sent to state training school, AKA Juvie. He was supposed to be released on October 11th, 1994, his 21st birthday. And when that happened, his record would be expunged per state law. So even though he murdered four people, he would still be out in five years and his record would be expunged. So- Oof, Okay. At the time of his sentencing, the judge ordered the school slash Juvie to hire psychiatric experts to help figure out a treatment program for Price um, so that he wouldn't go into the world completely insane still. And within weeks of his sentencing, state officials were already trying to figure out how the fuck do we keep this person in prison? How do we, what's the loophole? How do we get around this law? And one of the options was to possibly have him committed to a hospital. So right. his yeah. court appointed lawyer is like, hey, don't cooperate with the doctor, the psychiatrist, so that he can't make any findings against you that could be used to put you in an institution. The doctor said that Craig did want to talk to him, but he wouldn't do it without his attorney's approval. So he never spoke with this doctor. But now, what the fuck does that mean? Prosecutors could charge him for contempt. So oh. it actually back, it, it could backfire um, because he's defying a court order. But it's neither here nor there for the moment because one year before his release in 1993, he's prosecuted and apparently is the first person at this juvie to be prosecuted for verbal confrontation. So he didn't like fight anyone or hurt anybody, but he was prosecuted for verbal assault essentially. Okay. Um, they just was, really don't want him to get out. Basically. Yeah, they really don't want him out. Okay. So he's charged for a verbal assault because uh, he gets in trouble for having cigarettes and he yells at a guy. The judge sentenced him to 15 years 
seven to serve and eight suspended. So effectively, he could now be released in 2000 instead of 1994. Okay. Okay. So then in 1997, the prosecutors did make good on the contempt charge, and he was sentenced to 25 years, 10 to serve, 15 suspended, but could be applied if he got in trouble. Okay. Um, yeah. And interesting quote from Craig, he admitted that he lied during his psychiatric examination because when doctors asked him about the crimes, he he was like, oh, I didn't kill Becky. And then uh, other people killed the Heaton family. I was just there. Like, it was a robbery. Like, he just made some shit up. But he said his quote about it was, it's necessary to set up some kind of safety mechanism when you know the grass is hot and the snakes are crawling. Creepy. Whoa. So at this point, he could now be released in 2010. But in 1998, he stomped an officer. I don't know. In 2001, he beat up an inmate. And so at this point, his release date could be in 2022 when he's 48. Oh, shit. Uh, but in 2019, just three years shy of his possible release, he was convicted for stabbing a fellow inmate and he was sentenced to an additional 25 years. So he's now been in prison for 32 years and his new release could be 2044. Wow. So what do we know about Craig? He's got some fucking anger issues, obviously, but I want to go back really quickly to why he murdered these women because we still don't really know. So this is a quote from a psychiatrist that uh, did some tests on him. He said, he appears to be a young man limited in the available resources for coping with stress and vulnerable to being overwhelmed by stimulus demands, both from his own emotional pressures and from the environment. Predicted as a result would be disorganization and a loss of control. This teenager believes that past degradations may be undone by provoking fear and intimidation in others. He is rarely able to submerge the memories of past humiliations, and this resentment may break through his controls in impulsive and irrational anger. So the article that I've been referring to, a lot of the content comes from interviews that the journalist did with Craig while he was in prison. And Craig describes his first memory of feeling racism directed at him. And when he was nine or 10, he had just got a new bike, covered that shit in Pepsi stickers. And he was about to race his friend on his new bike. A group of teenagers started yelling slurs at him and chased them in his car. He was terrified that they would kill him. And he ended up crashing his bike, trying to get away. Now he went home and his father was angry that he had crashed his bike and Craig never got a chance to explain what had happened to him. So his dad spanked him and Craig, this is like the first time that he felt a rage and like wanted to kill someone because of how they treated him. Because like he didn't get to tell anybody about it. He pushed it down. And it was kind of the beginning of like him having a lot of uncontrolled anger that he just bottled. And so to go back to your question about could he do all this shit while he's stoned? Yeah. And I think based on his experiences and also his descriptions of why, so he killed Joan because he felt like she was, she was racist. She was looking down on him. She was Mm -hmm. judging him, accusing him of things he didn't do without saying them. He went to Becky's house because he thought that a person who had called him a racial slur was there and that he should kill that person. So, yeah, yeah. So, 
hearing his stories and there were other stories, you know, that he, he, it just seems like he had this baseline of paranoia that smoking pot probably just made worse. Yeah. So I imagine that for him getting high wasn't like a relaxing experience. It was like a heightening of that paranoia and that like obsessive thinking about these alleged wrongs and you know, he's just having like circular thoughts about how he's humiliated and he never does anything until he works himself up so that he acts on it. Yeah, that makes actually a lot of sense. Yeah. Now that you put it that way, like that makes yeah. a lot of sense. So if yeah. you pair it with LSD and like, yeah, fucking half the time he was probably having acid flashbacks. So well, yeah. I'm wondering if he really realized what he was doing. Yeah, and that's one thing that he's he does say later is he's like, I was 13. I didn't really understand the concept of death. So and I, I think that's like true to a degree. Like when you're that young and you know. Yeah. So and yeah, maybe he didn't realize what he was doing half the time. Half his story, he's like, Yeah, I was in the house and then I zoned out because I was fucking high. Yeah. And I was like confused and like kept getting distracted and then I was angry and like, you know, so yeah. So yeah crazy case right yeah that's fucking crazy it's like not that old he was 13 and 15 he did these horrific murders two years apart no one suspected him for the first one of course yeah and it's also like a rare thing that murders cross racial yeah like cross to other races so it's just like very i don't know extraordinary that yeah. he, that everyone he killed was white. I've also course, never heard of this case. And, I know. And, and it seems crazy. like it's so, yeah, it seems like since that never happens, like, why aren't we ever talking about the time it did happen? Of course, it makes sense if you consider that his, him blaming it on, on feeling like racist. But again, Becky, Becky wasn't racist towards him as far as he as far said as anything, know, yeah. but he just, by that point, he was like, I have to kill somebody. So he obviously has a combination of like, super duper paranoia uh that was probably worsened by pot and like a lot of rage issues probably worsened by lc lcd lsd (laughs) well i'm also wondering if it's a it's a question of gender in the sense that like in both cases it was a man or like a boy who insulted him mm-hmm. and he ended up attacking women was it because he thought he'd have less resistance but at the same time he was 220 and like massive so maybe yeah. he wouldn't have had really much resistance anyway but it's just that these women were easier targets and i mean two of them were children so yeah i mean if maybe if he had gone to becky's house and the man he intended to kill was there maybe he would have like backed down You know, maybe he would have seen that guy and been like, I don't know. But he saw Becky and was like, well, she's vulnerable and I'm really fucking angry. So I'm going to stab her. Yeah. And same with Joan. Like he assumed she had a husband that he would have to kill, but he was intending to kill her because she was the one who had slain him in that case. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it's just, yeah, it's just the way we think about serial killers, I feel like is very different from the way this case kind of goes down. Yeah. One one thing that's like really different from your case to my case. Mm-hmm. So like, so in my case, they attempted, they attempted rehabilitation. It didn't work out, but they tried it. I feel like yeah. in your case, even though, even though the law said that he would be released, it looked like, it looked like there was zero attempt at rehabilitation. In fact, mm-hmm. there were just a million attempts at incarceration and punishment for the mm-hmm. rest of his life or at mm-hmm. least like for as long as possible mm-hmm. i mean did you read anything about any attempt 
at maybe finding a way to rehabilitate him so that if he did get out of 21 that he he wouldn't murder again no and in fact um one thing and i didn't like look into it at all but it was mentioned was that there was like a group of concerned citizens who were you know like petitioning to have this and i think the laws actually changed now i think they changed it because of this case so it's no longer in existence but there was like a concerned citizens against the release of craig price group that was like constantly trying to like wage this war so yeah and i mean he did do some violent shit but does it is it surprising he's been jailed yeah like that's not if you have like the type of problems he has that's not going to help because all he felt then was institutional racism yeah and you know a literal inability to vent any of his rage out yeah. because he's fucking caged all the time so it's yeah. like yeah you're creating a monster here for yeah. sure I don't think oh. he's gonna see the light of day ever again. Oh, sorry, what? I don't think so either because he did stab that guy. So I feel like he's going to stab or be stabbed again. But I forgot to mention, he never told his family what happened. And so when this article that I was referencing was written in 2004, it was the first time he spoke about the murders. And part of the reason was that he didn't want to hurt his mom. And the journalist was like, well, doesn't your mom already know? He had told his family that like his same story that it was like a group of four of them who like went to rob this house and it got out of control and like other someone else murdered the family and he did not oh that's the story he told his family and they believed it even though he confessed they were like well the police colors confessions all the time which of course they do so they never knew the real truth oh shit isn't that fucking bananas yeah Uh, wait hold on what was that thing in your story like because like didn't sorry wasn't there a thing in your story when craig is like 16 and the cops get called for like a domestic thing yeah what was that about again so that was he got in a fight with his sister and they called the police but there was no other information about it so i don't know if they called the police because he was like hurting her or if they were just like scared or what or or if it just was like getting out of control but but and was this after the first murder but before the second one yes it was it was between murders it was between murders so like mm, so mm. i mean the like he's constantly high and his family has no fucking clue so they could was some sort of disconnect like but yeah and his his mom and sister were just like the the journalists interviewed them and they were like no he didn't do it he just like you know the other kids blamed it on him and now he's in prison yeah he didn't do that and the journalist is like well what about becky and she's like what no he didn't kill her oh my god they didn't even know about becky yeah like they don't believe that he did that whoa they just think that the cops like made it up and like pinned it on him i wonder what they think now me too because this was yeah quite a few years ago but i mean why would it I don't know. Why would it change, I guess? Caitlin, that was fucking bananas. Right? Can you even deal with that? No. Oh, my God. He's a smart guy, too. Well, like, when I was reading the articles, he's very smart. Actually, yeah, similarities between your case and my case. Like, Mm -hmm. both of them were smart. Mm -hmm. Also stabbed someone later in life Mm -hmm. after being, Mm -hmm. like, a killer as a Mm -hmm. teenager. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, I mean, you know, had victims that were more vulnerable than they mm-hmm. were and who definitely like couldn't fight back. Although like, yeah. 
I don't know. There is something about like a child killing other children to me that is like really yeah. chilling. Yeah. Like, you know, he was like what, 15 or 16 when the when the other murders happened when the second murders yeah. happened. Like yes. And you're killing like a nine and an eleven year old. Like that was yeah. you like five years yeah. ago. Like, how can you I know. <sighs> I don't know. It's just mm-hmm. it's messed up. Yeah. Young guns, man. Baby yeah. geniuses. Mm. Actually, no guns in your story either. I know. Well, I hope our audience will forgive us Maybe. for the misnomer. Me too. They probably won't. So in that case, farewell. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're done. Uh, I mean, it was a bummer, but um, really interesting cases. But fucking crazy. Yeah, like yeah. never why, so wild. So, so yeah, that is, uh, according to my criteria, America's youngest serial killer. Yeah. I mean, so, okay. Interestingly enough, um, when I researched like Canada's youngest serial killer, there's another guy who, who comes up and maybe I'll, we'll, we'll, I'll find maybe another way to work it into another episode, another theme, Mm -hmm. but this guy, I think also murdered three people. I think he murdered three women, if I'm not mistaken. And he was 19. And so, which is very young and, and I need to read more about it because I don't know the case super well, but from what I do know about it, I think it is one of those cases where like this person seemed totally normal mm-hmm. to everyone until they were caught. And then people were like, what? Like he was my, yeah. my best friend or he was my next door neighbor. He was a totally normal kid. Like what happened? So mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but he is not in terms of age. He is not actually the youngest. Mm-hmm. So that's why I did not do that case. But mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. another... <laughs> another week another uh that was a good one though yeah yeah fuck um, don't forget to rate review and subscribe and follow us on instagram and um comment on our instagram and go to our website and oh we should probably post on instagram what? i feel like we haven't posted oh yeah oh yeah no, i know i owe i owe our listeners like three posts but i also um, need to send you photos i haven't sent you anything in okay. a while yes yes bb's do your phone yeah i know um and also if you listen to us and then more people listen to us then there's a possibility of merch so if you're not doing it for us do it for you so that you can have a t-shirt yeah or funny cup or a sticker or a sticker or a hat that Um, says ass hat hat. on it (laughs) yeah it just says ass actually it's just a hat and it just says ass on the front that or there's just like a, a donkey like a, oh my god i promise none of that merch will be available you don't like any of my merch ideas <laughs> no you wanted to put ambitious on a t-shirt and i think that's a great idea that's true. but you know what i was thinking about that is that it doesn't work in a singular because oh, then it's, that's not the play on words goes away so it would yeah. have to be like ambitious and then the definition has to be like oh, bitches that are women. ambitious <laughs> together but that's yeah. fine because women should yeah. support each other anyway I agree. Don't be an am bitch. Be ambitious with That's your friends. Support other women. Yeah. Taylor Swift. <laughs> I don't know. She said something uh, about that. Oh, well, I'm sure they all do. Um, she said something fucking dumb about like another woman that was like women who she's you know that stupid quote where it's like women who don't support women deserve a place in hell. But she like said it about someone who was like like didn't care. It was like what? Go away. Anyway, Taylor Swift, go write more songs about your breakups. Yeah. But yeah, like uh, uh, by the way, for for the folks who are listening to us and who are loyal listeners, you might have noticed recently that we haven't been super regular in our posting schedule. Mm-hmm. The reason for that is because 
life happens and we have full-time jobs and mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie. It has been an amazing creative process, but it's also been really difficult to do this systematically like every single week in the same way. And so we apologize, but we also are really just trying our best and we really appreciate that you still listen to us. And, um, yeah, and I think we will keep, you know, we're still releasing content, you know, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and actually the more of you listen to us and the more resources we can get actually the more we can even look into research assistance and things mm-hmm. that would allow us to post every week so that's another reason to tell your friends about us help us be ambitious and stay on schedule thank yeah. you all right well uh yeah thanks again and uh we will see you soon don't hate us because we love you oh damn it <laughs>